This Ends at Prom is a critical analysis show and is being produced in solidarity with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. The podcast you're about to hear was produced during the strikes, and without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movie being reviewed here wouldn't exist. For more information, feel free to visit the Freelance Solidarity Project at freelancesolidarity.org. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Welcome back, prom party. What's that expression that those brothers Grimm use? Once upon a time? <laughs> I mean, they may start with once upon a time, but the brothers Grimm usually ends with horror stories. They're cautionary tales. Yeah, cautionary tales where people end up like butchered. <laughs> yeah. Hey, life's scary, man. You know what? That's a great Especially point. Especially in like the Middle Ages, like you were far more likely to be butchered then <laughs> or dying of polio. Like, oh no, I stubbed my toe. Now my toenail's infected. I'm going to die of gangrene. That's true. Or like, ooh, there was a rat and now I have the plague. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the obvious one. <laughs> BJ, too soon. Yeah, I guess apparently recording this episode while I still have COVID voice talking about plagues. Yeah. Who am I? Yeah. <laughs> Friends, we are here to talk today about another movie having a 25-year anniversary, Ever After, A Cinderella Story. This is one of the most requested films that we have gotten on this show. Oh, yeah. Everybody wants us to talk about Ever After. And I am going to, you know, a little peek behind the curtain here. If you've listened to any of our episodes on movies like A Knight's Tale is probably the, the easiest one. Um, Harmony does not do well with period pieces or anything in like period dress or where there's kind of elevated heightened language. Well, so we went into this. I knew what this was. It is now our third Cinderella story mm -hmm. after Cinderella 97 and A Cinderella, a Cinderella story. story, which like. Somehow none of them are like proper, proper Disney. Like they're orbiting Disney. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, well, we have Hilary Duff. We have Wonderful World of Disney. Like this is the furthest removed from Disney that Cinderella has gotten for us so far. Mm -hmm. But yeah, BJ was kind of watching this going like, I'm really curious to see how you're going to process this because uh, it removes all of the fantasy elements. And it mm -hmm. is more of just a historical romance. Mm-hmm. Um, with it, less anachronism and Thin Lizzy than A Knight's Tale. <laughs> I was hoping that because the story and the characterizations are very modern um, compared to our typical Cinderella stories, that this would be okay. And I like to think that that was beneficial. But part of why we didn't cover this movie is because I knew how many people wanted us to. And I was 
a little terrified that people were going to be heartbroken if we covered it and Harmony was like, I just couldn't get into it because it's a fucking period piece. And as we say in the show all the time, the same way that people have the gene that makes cilantro taste like soap, uh, Harmony just cannot get on board with movies that are usually like filmed in this way. And it doesn't matter how good it is. It's just, it's going to be soap for her. And The way that we recounted it when we had Jess on for A Night's Tale is that the issue I have with period pieces typically or at least like period piece dramas, mm-hmm. is they're fucking dry. Mm-hmm. And they have one tone. And it is two and a half hours of that one tone. Mm-hmm. And they have to justify putting the time and the money into their costuming and their setting and the fact that everyone has to learn how to speak in a British accent, even though this takes place in France. What is this, Les Mis? <laughs> but I actually did quite enjoy this movie. Oh, uh, thank God. <laughs> um, so... Before we watched this, what did you know about Ever After going into it? I knew it was a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. I had seen images of it, um, specifically like the costuming, uh, usually the wings. Uh, Yeah, the wings are pretty iconic. Yeah. um, I'm going to have more to say about the wings when we get to a little bit more context. Uh But like, no, I didn't really know too much about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I knew it was around. It would pop up all the time whenever I would be like seeing what came out that year for teen releases and researching for other episodes in 1998. Mm-hmm. But no, I was a little in the dark before we sat down to watch it. Okay, cool. I like when you go in and you don't have necessarily preconceived notions either, because obviously you've not seen a lot of the movies we cover, but sometimes it's a movie you that is- You hear a rumbling. Yeah, it's like permeated the culture to the point where you kind of know what you're getting yourself into, or at least you have an idea of what you're getting yourself into. And I'm always excited when- you're kind of a blank slate with these sorts of movies. Well, it's, it's what's the ob- observed subject or whatever. Yeah. Where the results of the, of the observations get skewed as soon as that you realize that you're being studied. Exactly. <laughs> so what about you? Because this movie feels very much like a movie that you and many other girls growing up watched at sleepovers. Oh, definitely. So this is this is another sleepover classic. Um, but what I find very interesting is that my love of this movie is obviously Melanie Linsky because I adore her. So that was always a big selling point for me. But I also really love Drew Barrymore and I have always loved Drew Barrymore. And that was a big draw for me. Whereas a lot of my friends, I think it was the romance because this is such a great romance story as well. That was usually the thing they were the most into. And I don't know, maybe it's just like the baby queer in me where I was like, "Mm, I just really like Drew Barrymore and I like Melanie Linsky and I'm feeling some kind of way about Angelica Houston being super mean. I don't know if I want to like be her or have her yell at me. I I can't figure it out. That's just Angelica Houston in most (laughs) things, especially in the 90s. Exactly. Like the the combination of like the witches and the Addams Family and then this, like there was no way I wasn't going to be obsessed with her because she was also like one of the most dominant like adult goth figures in my in my brain. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was very obsessed with her. Um, but what's weird is that this is a movie that I've not revisited in a very long time. No, this movie is sandwiched between Scream and Never Been Kissed. You've got other Drew Barrymore you're watching from this time period. Exactly. And I mean, even Charlie's Angels a couple years after. Um, so yeah, I never really like went back to revisit it. I think the last time I watched this, I watched clips of Melanie Linsky because I was writing a piece about Melanie Linsky, but I didn't actually watch the movie. Mm-hmm. I just found her like greatest hits and that was it. Yeah. So it was really nice to revisit this and try to have like the nervousness of, is this going to be good? Is this going to be like embarrassing 1990s girl power rhetoric? Like, what are we going to get here? 
And I was pleasantly surprised at how much I still really, really enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, okay, this is nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you have not seen Ever After, here is your plot synopsis. The Brothers Grimm arrive at the home of a wealthy grand dame who speaks of the many legends surrounding the fable of the Cinder Girl before telling the true, quote unquote, story of her ancestor. That is, uh, I guess, a tantalizing way of introing this movie, but doesn't tell you very much about the movie itself. It doesn't, but this is one of those plot synopses where I like that it doesn't give it away because... Cinderella is such a classic tale. It's been around for centuries, and it's been told and retold for the most part the exact same way. We don't need another backstory of Uncle Ben dying, but <laughs> right. translate that over to Cinderella. Right. We know what it's about. Exactly. Like, we, we know what it's about. So when you have it promoted as, like, the true story or the real story behind it, that's really exciting because it's letting you know immediately this is not your typical Cinderella story, mm-hmm. and that's very enticing. Yeah, and uh, so we so we watched the trailer for this movie. What the fuck? <laughs> it is not good. Part, no. of, part of it's that the, the the quality of the actual videos is not very high, but it makes it look like a bad made for TV movie. It really, really it's, does. It's got like Xena Warrior Princess font mm-hmm. with just like words on screen. Um, one of the songs is the Mummer's Dance, which is like a techno remix done by the people who did Tom's Diner, but for mm-hmm. like an a Irish folk song. Uh-huh. And then the other one is just techno. Yeah. So then it's just thumping techno for like the second half of the trailer. I'm like, what the fuck are they doing? Yeah. With the exception of Drew Barrymore as Danielle with the wings on saying, just breathe. There's no dialogue really from it's the movie. It's just a clip show. It's a clip show. It's it, like it looks like a fan cam for this movie. Yeah, we were unsure. We had to watch like three different trailers to see if this was actually the trailer or if something somebody or if it was something somebody made. Yeah, like we really couldn't tell. But it the best way I can describe it is it's a fan cam. Yeah, it's a fan cam for Ever After, and it's an AMV somebody made and set to the Mummers Dance. Yeah, which again, like you're in France, why is it Irish? Okay, um, so you know, just vaguely European. That's kind of the vibe. <laughs> like, I mean, that's what most Americans think. We just assume that all of Europe's basically the same. Right. What's Wales? Right. The Irish absolutely get along with the English. What? <laughs> They're neighbors. And like, okay, this is like not a tangent that is related to this, but not really at all. So obviously, like, we are filthy Americans, and we have no qualms admitting when we don't know shit about shit when it comes to like geography or history or whatever. But I also want to remind people that like. Because people love to throw that back in Americans' faces. And it's like, I need you to understand that, like, the way people live in New York City is not the same way people live in Florida, is not the same way they live in Montana, is not the same way they live in Denver, and is not the same way they live in California. We are just as diverse and, like, varied and wild as Europe. We just happen to be captured under like one umbrella so like the same way that we don't know shit about europe y'all don't know shit about us either it's fine we're all idiots trying our best yeah i mean it's not relevant right do i think somebody in france needs to know what's going on in mississippi no no i really don't no (laughs) that's just like if i was like on tiktok earlier and that was a thing that was going around where somebody was like 
you know, mouthing off about like how Americans don't know anything about, you know, European history. And it's like, y'all think that people that are in like the deep South and people that are in liberal bubbles have the same life. We don't. Yeah. I know. I mean, for people who, for this is just, this is just telling We just want to change. This is this preaching point. to the choir for every one of our like American listeners. But <laughs> right. like, you know, <laughs> if you're not from here, it's like, I oh, know we're essentially just 50 tiny countries crammed together. Exactly. And we shouldn't be possibly, but you know, shit happens. Yeah, yeah, things happen. It's, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah. So Ever After is turning 25 this year. This means that this came out the same year as The Parent Trap, but I think we can both agree that they are not targeting similar audiences. I can tell you that this movie is also not capturing the audiences of our other alum of Halloween Town and Pleasantville. No, no, we're looking at some very different films. Definitely. So what kind of context do you want to bring to the table for Ever After? So 1998 is not the strongest year for teen films. Uh, We've gone over that a little bit. Uh, 99 is obviously going to overshadow everything. The the previous five years combined. And the next 20. (laughs) Yeah, 99 is the year. But something that we pointed out when we did our A Knight's Tale episode is that in the 90s, uh, we started to do a little bit more of like historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And part of that is probably a response to Y2K mm-hmm. coming coming up and how we like we're facing the future. So it's like, well, we'll go to the past. Mm-hmm. So some of the most popular movies that you're going to see for teens uh, of, of the previous years were like Titanic and like Romeo plus Juliet, mm-hmm. which like I know it's set in Los Angeles, but it's Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah, y- there's always going to be something like old feeling if you do anything with Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, it's at least with like a lot of the Shakespearean adaptations that we do on the show, like 10 Things I Hate About You or She's the Man. Mm-hmm. There's there's no bones about that being a different story that's adapting a Shakespearean story. Mm-hmm. That one's just Romeo plus Juliet. Right. It's just Boslerman's Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah, yeah. So I think that there was a a, a market for big romance, mm-hmm. big big romantic feelings, which like the adult contemporary ballad did very well. Like everything mm-hmm. I do, I do for you from Robin Hood is one of the biggest hits of the nineties. Mm-hmm. God, it's awful. Yeah, the 90s, we loved easy listening. We loved, like, rom-com explosion. Romance. Romance was huge in the 90s. Exactly. So I think there's a lot of elements that come from, like, general pop culture for why we wanted historical romance. Mm -hmm. But also, and this is a lot more of a direct line, Disney kids are getting a little older. Mm -hmm. The kids that were watching Beauty and the Beast at the start of the 90s are now teenagers gone through puberty who understand, like, crushes and romance and love on a deeper more personal level than just like oh golly it's a prince i'm supposed to like princes Mm -hmm. i think that this is a ushering in like the next stage of of liking fairy tales for Mm -hmm. for young children in the 90s i think that's a really really good point because you're totally right like we'll talk about generational movies on the show quite a bit where a movie will get remade once the people who were around the age that they loved something now have children of that same age. Like, that's pretty common. But the boom of the adaptation of movies that kind of Disney did, or, like, the the take on Disney, because they don't own Cinderella, they don't own a lot of these stories because they're all old as fuck in public mm-hmm. domain. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right. I think that's absolutely a thing that happened. And obviously they do perform well, which is why we get so many of them. But what's fascinating is that we didn't have a ton of Cinderella movies 
quite yet. Oh, no. We're going to have way more. Yeah, we're like, going to get Disney way, way more. Disney did Cinderella for Wonderful World of Disney the previous year. And then once we get to the 2000s, you're going to get a Cinderella story. Yeah. And, and then, then obviously that horrible one with James Corden and Camila Cabello with all of the nightmare CGI. <laughs> and those are just the easy ones. There's even more. Yeah, there's tons of different Cinderella stories. And I mean, there's multiple Cinderella stories because they have tons of sequels. It's like six. Mm-hmm. It's not six. I think it's like four. <laughs> um, but what I find really fascinating about Ever After is something that we talked about when we covered Sydney White, which is one of our very first episodes we ever recorded. It's the first time a friend of the show, Vanessa Guerrero, came on. And it is a you know, modern retelling of Snow White with Amanda Bynes. And it's also incredibly political. And Ever After is also very political, despite it being a period piece, which I think was really revolutionary at Mm. the time. Um, And we'll obviously dive into that a little bit more. But that's something that I think is really interesting to look at, is that it's not just an interpretation of a classic fairy tale. It's also somewhat of a call to action and uh, a little bit of education for the viewers at hand. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to think of the fairy tale in a modern setting, you cannot remove it from Disney. Mm -hmm. Like they have influenced it to the point where even something like Shrek, which is a fairy tale, is a direct response to Disney. Mm -hmm. And so come 90s where you get like 90s feminism – and people becoming a little bit more aware of things, there was some very uh, strong anti-princess feelings mm-hmm. because it was always waiting for a prince to save you. Mm-hmm. It was women who wouldn't do anything other than look pretty and sing songs and talk to animals. And particularly like the original three Disney princesses mm-hmm. did very little mm-hmm. other than just be nice. I think this is one of like the earliest examples of someone taking like a direct shot at like what Disney has produced in terms of like common knowledge of, uh, of the princess trope. Absolutely. Um, And that change and that subversion is a huge part of why Drew Barrymore signed on. And before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. We're in the heart of summer prom party, and hopefully you all are all surviving. We're we're doing our best over here, consistently having to record without the air on in Los Angeles. It is... It is a lot, but we got some really fun stuff over on the Patreon for you to be excited about this month. Speaking of unbearable heat and no relief from it, for our Sadie Hawkins dance, we're covering a suggestion box film from a number of people. We're doing Holes and a a personal favorite from my neck of the woods, Tommy Boy. So we're talking about a, a boyish man in that one. For our musical milestones, we are going to be covering 90s Eurodance and Europop as filtered through like us filthy Americans where we really just got like the cream of the crop over here. And this may or may not be inspired specifically by Barbie girl. And we're making up for some lost time because we got, uh, we got caught with the COVID finally in the back part of July. And you're going to get two episodes of us covering the total six episodes from the start of my so-called life. You're also going to get a double dose of BJ's monthly newsletter to make up for us being too sick to do it last month, as well as the one for this month. In addition to all that, you'll get my fun indie playlist, as well as access to the suggestion box, where you can go ahead and throw in your own suggestions, either for the Sadie Hawkins dance, the main show, or anything else. With this being August, it is officially going to be three whole years of This Ends It Prom, and 
We truly could not have done it without all of you. We even bought new microphones to celebrate, and hopefully we sound way better to your to your ears. As always, if you're not able to financially support the podcast in any way, the best thing you can possibly do to support us is recommend us to a friend, rate, review, do all, do all that fun stuff. Thank you all so much, and now back to the movie. So in 1998, uh, this is around the time that Drew Barrymore was trying to get her own production company off the ground. Drew Barrymore is obviously a Hollywood legacy. Um, She comes from the Barrymore family. Her grandfather, John Barrymore, also a Shakespearean actor. Um, You know, one of the most like recognizable familial names in the industry. And she had not quite like exploded, exploded yet. Um, That's going to come next year. But people know who Drew Barrymore is. They like her a lot. Drew Barrymore is a big enough name to get an entire project off the ground at this point. Mm -hmm. And she really, really wanted to do Ever After. Um, She spoke a lot about the movie during the uh, anniversary a couple months ago, like the literal anniversary. And this is one of the things she had to say to Entertainment Tonight. I was in my early 20s, and then I was trying to start a company and wanted to tell stories and make films and that particular messaging that you can rescue yourself and you don't have to wait to be rescued is definitely the thing that set me up best in my life, Barrymore credited. And I honestly don't know who I would be honestly without it. It changed the way that I saw the world. Mm -hmm. And I really like that because actors obviously are playing a part. They're playing characters. Their job is to play pretend. And I love it when actors are candid about the ways that the roles they play genuinely affect the way that they exist as humans because that's kind of like what we talk about on the show. Like that's the whole central point of the show is that movies matter and they have an impact on you and they change the way that you see the world. So it's really nice when an actor is like, yeah, no, me too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But Drew Barrymore also as just an individual also has a pretty storied history in the industry. Oh, she was a wild child. She was a wild child. She had to go to rehab when she was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's she's struggled a lot and she's been very open and very candid about it. And if you've watched, you know, even a minute of her talk show, you know that she is also one of the kindest, most empathetic and understanding people probably on the planet. Drew Barrymore just cries when it rains. She, I love her so much. Like, I loved her in the 90s, but, like, as an adult, I really love her and just kind of the the gentle parenting that she does to everybody who, mm-hmm. like, comes face to face with her. Um, but I think that it's really nice when you know that that is the, the life that she lived and all of the troubles she went through so young that being able to play this character that does rescue themselves, that is an active participant in kind of fixing their own life and not just hoping that there's a magic wand that's going to be waved that changes everything for her. Like this movie does not have a fairy godmother because we don't have fairy godmothers in real life. Like we can have people that help us along the way, like in her case, Leonardo da Vinci, Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't have like magic, but that doesn't mean life cannot be magical. And I think that is kind of the central theme of this movie. And it's, weirdly meta when you look at the life of Drew Barrymore, somebody who 
for all intents and purposes, had every reason to become a fucking disaster person and like never recover. She has all of the markings of these like tragic child star figures that we all have terrible like stories about that we all know about. Mm -hmm. If she would have ended up that way, no one would have been shocked. The shocking thing is that she didn't. The shocking thing is that she is, you know, resilient and wonderful. And to know that this movie played a huge part in that it's just magical. It's magical. You make your own magic. <laughs> you make your own magic. And I think that that is just, it just makes me very, very happy. Um, so we did watch the footage of the Ever After reunion mm-hmm. um, on the Drew Barrymore show, which of course included full costumes because Drew commits to her bits. Yeah. she's got She's got those wings. She's got the wings. Which uh, were apparently quite cumbersome because she was struggling to sit down. Uh-huh. And also, like, remarkably similar to an iconic shot from Romeo plus Juliet. Mm-hmm. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we watched that. And the things that I learned that I really enjoyed is that, one, everybody who works on this movie seems to have extremely positive uh, memories of it, mm-hmm. which is not always the case on movie sets, um, especially movies that deal with like a lot of this movie is outdoors. A lot of this movie is in period dress. I mean, all of the movies in period dress, but um, that can be very uncomfortable. Um, you're dealing with animals. Like this movie could have been a shit show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they all seem to have been like really happy. Uh, they, a lot of them lived together. They went partying in French clubs. Uh, Drew Barrymore and Melanie Linsky talked about getting in trouble because they were like dancing on the bar and they were like, get the fuck down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the thing I really loved is Drew Barrymore talking about how she was uh, partially responsible of getting Angelica Houston cast. Uh, yes, apparently she used familial guilt and screamed at her. <laughs> right. So uh, Angelica Houston, also a Hollywood legacy family. The Houstons are our legacy family. And... Um, Angelica's dad, John, used to hang out with Drew Barrymore's grandpa, John, and they were kind of notorious in Hollywood for being like party boys. Mm -hmm. And um, she basically called Angelica Houston up and was like, they're probably up in heaven keeping the party going. So now we owe it to them to work together on this movie. And I think that's really cute and funny and poetic. Um, I know people have weird feelings about Nepo babies. I don't give a shit if someone's a Nepo baby, as long as like you admit you're a Nepo baby. I like the honesty, um, and I also want you to have the talent to back it up. Exactly. Like that's all I care about. And like Drew Barrymore obviously has the talent. Angelica Houston obviously has the talent. I don't give yeah. a fuck. Like, yeah, they did they have it easier? Of course. But like that does not change my enjoyment of watching them. Yeah. Like, Angelica Houston really made a wonderful career in the 90s as just being a villainous lady. Uh-huh. Like, she's obviously in The Witches. She's obviously Morticia, which is not the villain, but, in you know, th- that's the whole thing. She's of the Adam- spooky, yeah. That's the whole thing of the Addams Family is, like, they're the opposite. So in a different story, they are the villains. Right. But, like, by this point, Angelica Houston's starting to look a little older. Mm-hmm. She's starting to look a little bit more like a like a crone, like an, a wicked stepmother. Mm-hmm. And I love that Angelica Houston just has never gone, I'm going to get work done. She just goes, no, I'm going to get old. I love it. And gets no work done. And Mm -hmm. I just think that's great. Yeah, she's incredible. And like, I guess to to clarify, crone is not a dirty word on this podcast. No. The same way that bimbo is not a dirty word on this podcast. No. I am very angry at the movie Shallow Hal for trying to tell me that Bonnie Aarons isn't hot. I know. How dare you? For those who don't know, Bonnie Aarons is the nun. And she's in Shallow Hal as one of like, 
you know, oh, he thinks they're so hot, but then the camera pulls away and you realize they're ugly. Fuck you. Bonnie Aarons is a babe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, women who look like witches, like classic witches, not like, mm, I really like practical magic. Mm -hmm. Like I'm talking like a witch. Mm -hmm. I think that they're awesome. Yeah. I think they're super hot. Give me exaggerated features. Mm. Yeah. So like Angelica Houston, really good at playing villains, really good at being mean and evil. Um, I mean, she traumatized a bunch of children who would have watched her growing up as a witch uh -huh. like earlier in the decade. <laughs> right. So no, she's she's marvelous in this. Like the whole movie has everyone playing their roles stupendously. Absolutely. Um, and let's let's start going, I guess, like through our characters here. So obviously, Drew is playing Danielle. Um, and I love I love the naming conventions that movies do with Cinderella. A lot of times it's just Ella, mm -hmm. but the fact that she's Danielle, I was like, oh, that's cute. And there's probably like a it's lot not of. Ash Puddle. There, yeah, there's like a lot of girls that are probably watching this named Danielle. That's adorable. This is probably in my top five, like favorite Drew Barrymore characters. I could see that. Um, I think there's a lot of things about her in this movie that I wasn't prepared for um, in a Cinderella story. And I think that there's a lot of changes that are actually way more beneficial to to a story. Because mm -hmm. it's like it's one thing if it's a fairy tale, because like you read it's a bedtime story or something. You, it's supposed to be simple. You don't really care so much about character development. You care more about the scenarios and the things that happen to them rather than them mm -hmm. actually learning anything. You, the le the the listener of the story, are supposed to learn lessons from their mistakes. The characters are going to die and suffer and not learn anything. <laughs> right. That's a classic like Grimm's fairy tale. Mm -hmm. There's changes made to this from the typical formula that I think are great. Um, for one, no talking animals, fine. We replace them with, you know, servants. Mm -hmm. There's help, which means that, you know, she is now serving amongst servants and gets along with them better because it was from a happier time from when her dad was around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who have known her her whole life that she gets along with. And it, it, it immediately, like... It like marinades her in class solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, also, we watched the dad die. Like yeah. dad has a heart attack, falls off a horse, and usually he's already dead. Right. Like we usually get our Cinderella stories when we just get introduced to her and it's like, oh, your life sucks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really nice that we see how good things were before. I think this movie does a phenomenal job at establishing the type of person Danielle is, even as a child. Mm -hmm. um, I know you really like that reveal when she's excited and runs to dad and he's like, oh, look at you. Look, she's so cute. And then she turns and on the other side of her is just covered in shit. Yeah, she's just covered in like mud and like probably animal shit. Yes. And it's just like filthy. And it's yeah, like- Yeah, that, that reveal when the, he turns her around, that's great. It's so good. But it's like, she's so excited. Like, I think she says like, oh, it's better than Christmas. I get a mom and sisters on the same day. Yeah. Like she is so fucking stoked well, about she's never this known her mom exactly so and that's another thing that never gets brought up like disney loves killing parents that's normal that's like their favorite thing exactly <laughs> but like in cinderella we know dad dies we mm -hmm. never even talk about the mom mm -hmm. like I that's think just it's... that's it, I, it probably implied that she died during childbirth yeah that's the middle ages and that's fucking common mm -hmm. but like you never even think about her ever mm -hmm. and in this like because we see her so young we recognize all she wants is like that mother figure because she's never had one. Mm -hmm. And she's so excited and she, you know, she meets her sisters and she's really excited to see them. And it is like immediate that dad dies. Oh yeah. Same day. Awful. Yep. Falls off the fucking horse, drops dead immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a fucking tragedy. But 
Yeah, that, that's one of the, that's a couple of the big changes early on in this film that sets it apart from other Cinderella stories and I think is a way better for telling a good story with a good character. Mm-hmm. Um, they address this later on in the movie about how Danielle is uh, uncouth and not ladylike because she was raised by a man. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I, I could go one way or the other with this, but there is something about like the middle ages of him being like, I don't know how to raise a daughter. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to treat you like I'm going to treat like any kid that I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, fuck, we're reading books. and I'm going to teach you how to fucking swing swords. And you're going to do all this cool shit because that's like what I do. I, mm-hmm. I like books and swinging swords and riding horses. That's what you're doing. Great. Mm-hmm. So he's bonding with his daughter and teaching her like, these really cool things that typically women weren't doing. Mm hmm. Which I really like, too, because it also points out how absurd gender roles are and how limiting they are. And we see throughout the movie that Danielle being, quote unquote, not like most girls, complimentary, not derogatory in this Typically instance. derogatory, but like, Typically yes. derogatory, but in this instance, non-derogatory. Mm-hmm. That that is something that's very appealing about her, is that she... She's passionate. She's passionate. That's what the prince keeps saying. Mm-hmm. Which the prince has a name in this, and he usually doesn't in Cinderella. He's usually Prince Charming. No, he has a fucking name. It's Henry. Henry. Don't yeah. address him so informally. I know, how dare I? But, what was um, I thinking? Yeah, like he's enthralled by her because she's passionate about things. And most women just go, oh, my God, the prince, yay. Mm-hmm. And don't say anything because they don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Women need to like stay in line. And she's just like, no, nah, fuck it. What do I have to lose? I'm already a servant. Right. <laughs> in my own house. And the thing that I like, too, is that the movie also doesn't paint it as like, well, Danielle is this exceptional, special person because she's not like the other girls. It points out like everybody is living in this like really warped and backwards kind of society and she's bucking those trends. But the fault is not on all of the other girls for following in line. The fault is on the society for making that a requirement. Yeah. I like that. Like this movie knows who the true enemy is, which is not something we see very often in these sorts of fairy tale stories. It's usually presented as, well, Cinderella is just defying the odds. She's incredible, but it's because she's perfect and everyone else is terrible. And this movie's like, no, the world is terrible. The world is awful. The enemy of this movie is expectations. And Angelica Houston. (laughs) Well, obviously, she's the real villain, like, in a physical form, but in, like, terms of society, it's the expectations of everything. Exactly. Um, And so similarly to how Sidney White, I think we introduced it as, like, this is baby's introduction to socialism. Um, Ever After feels like the introduction to, like, sincere feminist theory. Fucking class solidarity. Class solidarity. Um, Like, it's very social justice, um, which I quite like because in one of the earliest things that we see that Danielle is very, very passionate. So one, she hits the prince with an apple because she thinks he's a thief. Well, he is stealing their horse. That's true. It's not, it's not she thinks he's a thief. Like, he is. Yeah. He's trying to run away from an arranged marriage and she fucking domes him. Yeah. Yeah, she does. She domes him. So immediately it's like, oh, female aggression. Like, we don't see that very often. She knows how to play sports. she That's the equivalent of throwing a baseball. <laughs> Dad taught her how to play catch. Right. That's the Sydney White connection. She, yeah. knows, how to, she knows how to play ball. Uh-huh. Um, so you have that sort of thing. But the main one is that um, because Angelica Houston, we learn, um, has a bit of a spending problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's in a lot of debt. And instead of taking accountability for her own actions, is just, like, selling off the servants into, like, in in danger, uh, endangered servitude, shipping them off to the Americas. Yeah, um, this very old man with a limp. 
Yeah, so she sells off one of uh, the men, and he happens to be like the husband lover uh, of one of the of, maids. Of or one whatever. of the maids, yeah. yeah. And because she now has this like surplus of of money, instead of you know buying something for herself or like you know I don't know trying to escape her stepmom, she's like, nope, I'm gonna use this money and I'm gonna go get him back. I'm gonna go buy him back so that he is back with us because. Life sucks, but I'd rather him have a, a life that sucks with us where he can have love and community. Well, the, the surplus of money is the prince buys off her silence. Yes. So it's just like, hey, um, don't say anything about me stealing your fucking horse. Here's 20 gold pieces. Right. <laughs> um, and so she she does that and she goes to, you know, get him and you know the, the she masquerades as as a noble woman yeah so she 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 puts on her her rich person cosplay um and what's fascinating is that she plays the part for believability but also doesn't sacrifice uh her morals because if she were to like really fully commit to the rich girl cosplay um she would not then suddenly be educating the prince about the importance of like what is essentially like the school to prison pipeline? Yeah. <laughs> like, she kind of goes on this thing and it's like, well, if they're born poor and we deny them an education and we deny them the resources and they're forced into like being a thief and being, you know, unintelligent and then you punish them for it. Like, what what are we doing here? And mm -hmm. I like you just hear that and you're like, this is literally the school to prison pipeline. Like, yeah. that's what you're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and, and also, like this movie doesn't overlook details because during that scene, like she 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 buys the freedom, or I guess the fr freedom to come serve at like her house for right. Angelica Houston. Right. Um, so you know, different levels of freedom, I guess. But she buys him back, and then they walk away, and I go, "Yeah, but fuck those other people," I guess. <laughs> and then like five minutes later, it's like, "Have you thought about freeing those people?" And I'm like, "Oh, okay. This movie actually addressed the thing that most movies just go. I mean, it's not relevant to the plot. Just like, mm -hmm. who cares? Don't pay attention to that. Right? Like this movie addresses the injustices that other movies ignore. Yes, and it's just like, oh, oh, okay, that's nice. Um, because you get that reveal later too when Melanie Linsky's like, "I heard that the prince released all of the men," and she's like, oh, "Did he really?" And is like so stoked about it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's really really nice. Um, and like in a lesser movie that like characterization, like she wouldn't have broken character like that, which, cause that's what she's doing mm -hmm. by having that big speech and by educating the prince on this situation, she's breaking the, the facade of being a lady. Yes. I'm following orders here. It's my job to take these criminals and thieves to the coast. A servant is not a thief, your highness, and those who are cannot help themselves. Really? Well then, by all means, enlighten us. If you suffer your people to be ill-educated and their manners corrupted from infancy, and then punish them for those crimes to which their first education disposed them, what else is to be concluded, sire, but that you first make thieves and then punish them? Well, there you have it. Release him. But, sire... I said... Release him. Yes, sire. <laughs> so uh, something that is also really, really great about this movie is how the prince and Danielle work, how, how Henry and Danielle get along. Mm -hmm. 
I think that this is such a better romance story than any other version of Cinderella I've seen. Because I actually understand what she sees in him? Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, classic Cinderella, they don't meet until the fucking party, and he sees her, like, across the room. Oh, yeah, and it's goes, love at first like, sight. Oh, my God, she's beautiful. What else is she? Mmm. She has tiny feet, and the prince likes tiny feet. <laughs> so, like, that that's it. That's the only thing that he ever learns about her. In other stories, it's, uh, there's, you know... More attention, I think, put on her trying to escape her stepmother, mm -hmm. and the prince is really a means of doing that. It's like, she got away and found love. Mm -hmm. But this one, no, like, this is such a more direct thing. It's not him noticing her across a crowded room, and she's beautiful, and he's he's struck by by her her presence, and it's love at first sight. It's, this bitch is being loud. What are you doing? And then he listens to her and goes, oh, uh -huh. You've caught my attention. Uh -huh. Like, don't get me wrong. Drew Barrymore is very cute, but like he is not enraptured by her looks. Mm -hmm. He's enraptured by her. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love that reveal when she does show up to the ball and she's got the wings and she obviously she is undeniably beautiful. They dressed her to the nines. Oh, she looks so beautiful. But he's already in love with her. Like. Th that's already there and it's also interesting because there is no like mystery identity there's no masquerade mask there's no anything mm -hmm. like she shows up at that ball and is like here I am and Angelica Houston is like that is my punk ass stepdaughter she is not who she says she are she's a fucking she's liar she's lying about her name she's a commoner and he's like right. and he's not he's not so much upset that she's a commoner he's upset that she lied yes I mean the king is very upset that she's a commoner. Well, because the king fucking sucks. The king does suck. He comes around a bit by the end there. That's true. Um, but yeah, I also think a really um, in, a compelling story beat of this is that she's constantly having to fake her identity for the first two thirds of the movie, mm -hmm. where there's things where she's like having to change clothes and sneak around. And I I think that also is exciting, particularly for like younger viewers, because you're like, oh my God, how's it going to happen? It's It's honestly like a sitcom trope. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, oh, no, I scheduled two dates at restaurants across the street from each other on the same night. Well, then it's, it, it's doing that, but with one man. <laughs> yeah, it's bordering on like Shakespearean comedy of errors. Like it's uh -huh. very much getting close to that realm, but it never like crosses the threshold into becoming a comedy of errors. Yeah. Um. So that also feels like very kind of classic and old timey. Exactly. And something that is really nice about some of these scenes, like when they find Galileo's flying machine mm -hmm. and the prince comes over and she's hiding behind like hay bales and has to run home and change clothes before he gets there. There's, there's, there's another kid there. I don't know his name. He's a painter. He's, he's, he's a ducky type, mm -hmm. but he's not a romantic option. Mm -hmm. And in a different movie, he would be a romantic option and he'd just have to deal. Mm -hmm. But instead he's just a friend. He's just yeah. a friend that they threw shit at each other as a kid, and they still get along. Yeah, they're just buds. Yeah, I love, I love, I love that. I love having buds. Boys and girls genuinely being friends, platonically. Mm -hmm. How about that? <laughs> um, so another character attribute that I love about Danielle that they put in here is that she is strong as fuck. Mm -hmm. um, she's got those thick thighs that can lift a full grown man. She's got tree trunks under that under that skirt. Because mm -hmm. um, yeah, she straight up squats a man and then like carries it. We, we learned through uh, through some some digging that apparently she did not actually lift him. He was on wires, which is heartbreaking. I know. I just wanted I'll... to believe that Drew Barrymore was buff. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's like you look at her and you're like, there's no way she can lift that man over her shoulders like that. But you know what? That's fine. You know, I, I really love 
that whole scene where it's like a swashbuckling scene Mm -hmm. and he's like, stay in that tree. I've got to defend my life and your honor. Mm -hmm. And then she gets like taken hostage and she shows that like she's got moxie and these like these bandits are like, oh, well, you know what? Because because you're impressive and fun, you can take whatever you want that you can carry, which does not include a horse. Mm -hmm. She wants a horse and it's like, hey, you're not carrying a horse. And she carries (laughs) the king away and. First of all, it's ve- they find it so funny that, like, he needs a woman to save him. Mm-hmm. But also, like, she's so tenacious that they're like, come on. Just like, all right, all right. You can have a horse, but, like, let's just hang out and drink. <laughs> and, like, they end up getting invited to the ball at the end of the movie. And she has a whole thing about, like, them being thieves and living the life that they're the only life they can get during that whole interaction. And then they kiss and everyone's like, ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I find that whole like 15 minute stretch of the movie just like magical. And it's so it's, nice. It's got such good chemistry and it's so well written. Mm-hmm. And I also like that her personality of like who she is also doesn't change even after, you know, she gets her happy ending and whatnot. Um, I mean, so after shit hits the fan, and they're gonna sell her to what is like the most cartoonish way to have like a middle a, a, a middle ages like villain. villain. He's got a bald head and he's got like a big guy fox evil mustache, mustache and, and a goatee. big gold earring. <laughs> and like he scans like so gay. And it makes so much sense because I did not realize when we were watching it. I only figured it out after, but it's like, oh, it's Richard O'Brien. Yeah, so <laughs> for those that don't know the name Richard O'Brien, he's Riff Raff in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, among many, many other things. Like, the, 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 him doing this character is just him doing his medieval interpretation of a Tim Curry character, where everything is slow and perverted and vaguely rapey. Which, like, he also wrote Rocky Horror Picture Show, so he wrote that Tim Curry character. Like, yes. yeah, this just, it is very much in his wheelhouse. This is great casting for a villainous fucking goon like this. It really is so funny. And, you know, and then you think about it, it's like, oh, Richard O'Brien, what has he been up to lately? I don't know, voicing the dad on Phineas and Ferb. Yeah. Okay. Like, he starts to do a lot. <laughs> lot less once you hit the 2000s and he just kind of gets I think picky and choosier about what he does so it's weird for me to see him in like the late 90s where mm-hmm. I'm not used to seeing him yeah I'm things. not either it so is I wasn't like... prepared for him to be this character <laughs> but yeah you're right it is truly inspired casting but like the way he idolizes her and he doesn't want her to run away like she's like locked up in in, in irons so mm-hmm. that she can't escape because she has tried to escape several times mm-hmm. and then like she pulls a knife on him and then a sword on him. I love a girl who comes with a backup weapon. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it's definitely a little bit bigger. It's a little more daunting. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, that happens. And then, like, it cuts to, to, to Prince Henry who's running and trying to be like, oh, God, my horse. It can't go fast enough to save my beloved. And then, like, he arrives as, like, she's leaving. <laughs> yeah. So she saved herself. And I just think this is, like, a really great early example of this that people would praise Disney for doing like 15 years later. Exactly. You will maintain your distance, sir. Oh, you didn't say please. Please. I could hang you for this. Not if you are dead. I do love your spirit. My 
father was an expert swordsman, monsieur. He taught me well. Now hand me that key or I swear on his grave I will slit you from navel to nose. Like, she, she is an active participant in all of this, which I... I really just love so much and the other thing that i love is that after you know the prince is like i'm dumb as hell i don't care who you are i am in love with you and you know the two of them get married they have to have like the 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 decision of like what do we do about angelica houston what do we do about her and in any other movie she would take the high road she would take the high road she is a merciful sweet princess with a heart of gold and she would be like, you know what? She's still my mother or I'm going to show kindness. Uh-uh. She's like, nope, you will get the exact same amount of kindness you showed me. Have fun being a servant, bitch. Have like, fun being purple. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I love that because I do feel like, especially in fairy tales, there is always this standard of like, you have to be, you have to be the Mary Sue, you know, mm-hmm. like you have to be this character that is so kind, even when people don't deserve it, because otherwise you're not a true princess. And she's like, no, 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 we're, we're, I'm a just princess. Well, the princesses don't get their hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Women aren't supposed to like enact vengeance violently on the villains or upon the people who like wronged them. Mm-hmm. Like, Ursula is stabbed by a boat driven by Prince David or whatever his name is. Eric. Is it Eric? Yeah. All right. Like (laughs) Prince other guy from Sleeping Beauty has to kill a dragon. I think it's, no, Adam is Beauty and the Beast. I don't know his name actually. I don't know. Like Belle doesn't kill Gaston. None of these things happen. It's always like they are hoisted by their own arrogance and they like fall to their death or something or they're killed by the prince. Like, that is what the classic Disney way is, where we do not sully the reputation and the innocence of our princess by making them make someone suffer violently or, in this case, uh, lifestyle emotionally, <laughs> where you just ruin someone's life. Also, Sleeping Beauty Prince is named Prince Philip. Great. I just needed that to be known because I-, I could tell that the second I was like, I don't know what that is. Somebody listening to this podcast ah, was Philip! like, it's Philip. It's Philip. I mean, anybody who's listened to this podcast for a long time knows that I am not great with names, which is why I usually just refer to people by their actor names. Well, this is Or also... the name of a character from a different movie. Yeah, like this is also a difficult movie because... I love everyone in the cast so much. And it's oh, like, Oh look, it's Melanie Linsky. What's her name? I don't know. It's Melanie Linsky. It's Jacqueline. Great. Um, and then Megan Dawes' character is Marguerite, but um, no, it's Melanie Linsky. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, in, in other fairy tales, the princess is innocent and sure. I mean, she's technically not getting her hands dirty. Like that's now their job because they're serving. So they're going to get their hands dirty, mm-hmm. but like it's her decree. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love, like, that's so much more powerful for a princess to actually take, like, this into her own hands. And -hmm. it's so much more in line with the theming of the entire movie. And it's just also satisfying. Sometimes bad things deserve to happen to bad people. Mm -hmm. Like, the best things that usually happen is, like, oh, no, you get revenge by leaving your stepmother in other Cinderella stories. That's fine, I guess. Like, the best revenge is living a happy life or whatever if you want to take the high road. But, like, you can do both. Mm -hmm. You can take the high road and still make somebody suffer. And I'm of two minds about this punishment being so good is because she could have, you know, shipped her off to the Americas and had her, you know, be an 
in indentured servitude for the rest of her life. Like that could have absolutely happened. And that probably would have been still a really awful existence for her. But the fact that she's working that close close. where she's going to have to look at her and know that that is her ruler every day, that rules. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that. She will die dirty and penniless amongst people who hate her. Because I don't think she's ever going to become friends with anybody else serving in the castle. Because mm-hmm. they all hate her. Because they all hate her. Like, she's going to have what, no community. That's what they find out when they're like, will anybody speak for you? And she's like, oh, no. Uh, a lot of people just happen to be out of town this week, I guess. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so, like, she won't have the uh, the, the, the camaraderie that mm-hmm. Danielle had with the people that she was forced to serve Angelica Houston and her stepsisters with. Exactly. So she is going to be angry and bitter and yelling with Marguerite and those are their lives alone and dirty and penniless. Yep. You were born not a street rat, but you will die a street rat. Basically. Because, <laughs> like, I don't know. I I think that it, it's unfortunate to be like, the punishment is you have to live like the commoners, which means their lives suck. But, like, right. that, that's the reality of things. And we see through bits and pieces that they, they are rebuilding that structure. Like, they want to build a library. Mm-hmm. They want to help everyone out. Like, this is going towards a more just thing prior to the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's a very idealized outlook on things that was not appropriate for the time. But, like, this is very much a revisionist 90s history of yes. this era. Oh, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a fantasy. Like, ultimately, it's a fantasy. Oh, of course it is. Um, and I think, I think it's less about, like, oh, living as, like, the commoner or living as, like, a servant is, like, a, a terrible way to live. Because I don't think Danielle views it in that way. Because no. she did it. And obviously, she was well, like, these are hardworking people. Well, that's her stepmother's worst nightmare. But it's her worst nightmare. And yeah. that's why it's, like, the insult. It's, it's like, the end of Troop Beverly Hills. Where, like, there's no shame in working at Kmart, but sending Velda Plender to have to work at Kmart, like, that is her worst nightmare. And that's why it's the punishment. Mm-hmm. It's just using their their weaknesses against them. Mm-hmm. Especially if they're in a position of power. Absolutely. As, as her mother was. Absolutely. So, like... I don't know. I, I, I think that this all lines up in a way that's I, I is very satisfying and doesn't have nearly the bu- the the bullet holes it should. Agreed. Agreed completely. Um, so obviously Danielle is our lead, but this does have a really wonderful supporting cast. I know we talked a bit about how having like Leonardo da Vinci be the pseudo fairy godmother character, I think mm-hmm. is really interesting. Um, we believe I, in science, not magic in this movie, damn it. <laughs> which I really like. Um, I like that it's implied um, that the painting, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the actual name because I will butcher it. Yeah, it's called like Portrait of a Woman or something right. very basic like that. So it is assumed that that painting is Leonardo da Vinci, but it's never been like fully proven. Just hit historians have been like, yeah, that was da Vinci. Yeah. And we've all just kind of accepted it. I like that it gives it this new life as, you know, oh, this is Cinderella and this the is wedding how gift. that. Yeah, it's the wedding gift. And it makes it, uh, that feels like a, a connective tissue to A Knight's Tale where, you know, they're incorporating like Chaucer in with, a fictional story. I, I like when movies do that. I like when movies do that and it works. Um, like I really like it in Shanghai Nights where they're like, hey, it's Charlie Chaplin. Right. <laughs> it's like, you didn't need to do that and it's a little weird, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, look at anything Tarantino's ever fucking done. Yeah. Like he does the same thing. Bruce um, Lee with an accent that he didn't have. Oh God, that was a mistake. <laughs> That's an entirely other podcast. Yes. That choice was the wrong choice. Um, so I like that that element is there. I think that that's really cool because 
this movie, like, you know, like we've been saying, it doesn't have like actual magic in it, mm -hmm. but there is something magical about like, oh my God, she knew this historical figure, like this person that is undeniably like an icon, like a folk hero. A character almost. that Bill and Ted would go back in time to meet. Yes. They're that important. Yes. So that's really cool and makes it feel magical because it's, it, it's like, oh wow, go back in time for that. Um, like there's a thing that's been going around a lot recently is um, that in Oppenheimer, there's a moment where he talks to Einstein. And like, obviously Einstein is a real person that lived, mm -hmm. but it is kind of wild because he's like, a, he's like a figure that is so distinct and so like memorable that I think people forget that he's real sometimes. Yeah. So that when suddenly you're in this movie and like fucking Einstein shows up, it's like, whoa. He just looks like a cartoon <laughs> character. Right. And that's kind of how, how Da Vinci feels in this where it's like, oh, that's right. Yeah. You were like a real person who painted things. You're not just like this, the source name of a Ninja Turtle. I mean, okay. he, he does feel a little kooky in this and feels maybe the most cartoony of all of the characters mm -hmm. where he, like he has to break her out of a prison and they're like, oh my God, you're a genius. And he's like, yes, history will remember me as a man who opened a door. <laughs> so like he's a little silly but like I like him yeah so I like that I like that instead of having you know talking animals that help everything you know we have we have the servants that are make all make like, it make big, sense in universe yeah it, they're all big personalities they're all very fun so you still have like that energy isn't lost um, because they are here mm -hmm. but I want to talk about how they change the stepsisters because pretty much across the board the stepsisters are one of two things they are either just as evil as mom and they're terrible or they're clowns. <laughs> I mean, I love them in 97. I love, love them in 97. I love when the stepsisters are bumbling fools. They make me very happy. But this movie is still following the traditional trope of where one of them is kind of like the preferred the, one, the preferred one and the, the other one's eye. Yes. And the other one is mocked. Um, she tends to the be the other one is the other one. <laughs> That's the other sister. <laughs> um, and historically, uh, through our adaptations, she does tend to be bigger, um, which is so wild because like you watch this and you remember the 90s and you remember like what a horrible fat phobic decade it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how fucking dare anyone say this about Melanie Linsky? Like, who like, do I have to fight? She's very normal sized in this. Yeah. And also, like, I, I, historically speaking, like, it, there's been ebbs and flows throughout history, especially for, like, white history. But, like, no, being a little being a little bigger, being a little bustier, having more dimensions like that, that generally was a was a sexy thing. Right. Especially in this time period. Like that uh -huh. was she would be the bell of the goddamn ball. Um, if anything, they would want her to be bigger. Um, but yeah. the thing that I love is I love that we are seeing that. That we are seeing that mom is not unconditional even to her own children. No. Um, like, she is so fucking mean. No, to she's, she's exploitive. Jacqueline, she's so mean the to The daughter her. that she likes is the one she has been, like, preening to marry a rich man so that she can comfortably live for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's what it's about, is, like, she exploits people. Mm-hmm. Like, she is, like, this version of, of, the, of the Baroness is, like the prototype that we would see for characters like Mama Rose or any 
stage parent we've mm-hmm. ever seen where they are vicariously living through their child, hoping that it's going to set them up for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. and completely neglecting the child that they don't think is going to be worth anything to them, yep. which is such a shame. And the fact that Jacqueline is still so kind and loving throughout all of this, despite the fact she's been kind of treated like shit her whole life. Well, she she can. I'm sure she can relate to Danielle. Definitely, because she knows what it feels like to be, you she, know. She I, cleans her wombs after Daniel gets a whipping. Mm-hmm. She's kind. And I know that some people feel some kind of way about, like, the pleasant fat lady, because that is also a trope, that if you are a character that is, you know. You can't be mean and fat. You can't be mean and fat. Like, that. Yeah. that's just not a thing that happens. Like, you have to be jolly. You have to be joyful. Um, and I also, like, just to clear the air, when we're talking about this character being fat, we're not saying Melanie Linsky's fat because she's not. But no. character, this character is supposed to be the fat sister. The way everyone treats her where it's like, Mom, my corset's awfully tight. And it's like, make it tighter because then you can't eat things. Yeah, if you can't breathe, then you can't eat. And yeah. it's like, oh, God. Like, what was the thing you pointed out? Like, during the first breakfast, she's eating, like, a grapefruit. Yeah, it looks Which, like she's eating a grapefruit. I don't, I don't know if that was a thing during this period of human history, but in the 90s, eating grapefruit for breakfast was, like, the weight loss thing. Yes. Um, like sugarless, bitter, sour ass grapefruit. That's yes. how you start your day. The citric acid kickstarts your digestion and helps you digest food throughout the day. Exactly. And it's only like 80 calories. Exactly. So throughout this movie, you know, I can understand the people who are like, I hate that she never like mouths off and mm-hmm. like does whatever. She she gets revenge in her own way. She gets revenge in her own way. And that is very satisfying for me. And, you know, when she finally does kind of like stand up for herself in like still in her very kind way. I think to me, it's like that is proof that this character just is a nice person. Mm-hmm. Like she is genuinely kind because she is treated like shit. So she knows the power of kindness. And I like that about her. Danielle is the one who's going to be like feisty as hell. That 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 character type is already covered here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Jacqueline has grown up with her mother her whole life, which means that she's been beaten down for her whole life. Yes. So I, I, I think... I don't, I don't want to be like, I guess, vindictive about this, but she does recognize that like there's something about not being the least popular of the of the three sisters. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, I mean, I, I'm not in the worst spot. It's Definitely. better. It's better to be scolded and mostly ignored than get active hostility. Definitely. But I will say that. This character meant a lot to me when I was younger. Well, that's just because you love Melanie. Well, one, because I love Melanie. And I've always, <laughs> that goes without saying. I've always loved Melanie Linsky. She has been one of my favorite actors forever. And I am so thrilled that because of Yellow Jackets, like people are finally starting to get on board with mm-hmm. what just a remarkable talent she is. But, you know, Melanie popped up in a lot of movies during my adolescence that meant a lot to me. Like this movie, Detroit Rock City, But I'm a Cheerleader, Heavenly Creatures. So I've always really loved her and I've always felt some kind of way about the way so many of her characters are treated because of her body. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to like talk about it too much because I also know that like from interviews that I've read and watched, Melanie also hates it when people talk about this sort Mm -hmm. of thing. But I think it's less about talking about Melanie Linsky, the person, and more about talking the uh, talking about the characters she's played. Mm-hmm. It is so incredibly validating when you watch this movie and you see this character who is constantly being poked at 
by her mother through her mother's own insecurities Mm -hmm. because growing up as somebody who is always bigger than the rest of the girls in school, even if I wasn't like quote unquote, like fat, even in those years, I was always still bigger, which the second you're bigger, you're fat. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much bigger, if you're bigger, you're fat. Um, And that's like the one area where I do still have like some stuff I have to work through with my own relationship with my mom because all of her insecurities got put on me because my sister was always thin and always tiny and I never was. And so all of my mom's insecurities, I ended up at like the the end of. And so watching this happen in a movie and it also doesn't like it doesn't feel like a cartoon You know, like a lot of times when you have fat characters, it is like Jan in Greece where it's like she's like, I'm going to eat Twinkies and drink wine. It's a dessert wine. And it's their personality is I eat. Yeah, their personality becomes I eat. And that's not Jacqueline's personality. Her personality is that she's kind. And seeing this character just kind of deal with that and deal with people poking at her and mocking her in the backhanded comments constantly Like, I really didn't see that representation growing up. Like, I really, like, I really can't remember seeing anything that was so blatant about that of, like, yeah, sometimes your first bully is your mom. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. It just means a lot to me. So when we were watching the Ever After Reunion on Drew Barrymore's show and she's back in, you know, period garb. I just like saw that and like all those feelings like came flooding back on Mm -hmm. me. And it's like, oh man, I didn't unpack that for like years later, like how much that meant to me because you don't want to admit that when you're in it, you know, like I wasn't about, I wasn't about to be like Melanie Linsky is my favorite character in this movie because I know what it feels like to have my mom constantly tell me to slow down while I'm eating, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I just, I don't know. That's all. I don't want to like repeat myself and get like circular about it, but the character of Jacqueline means a lot to me, and Melanie Linsky means a lot to me, and she knows that. Mm-hmm. She's read your writing. Yeah, like she follows me on Twitter, so like there's a non-zero chance that like she might hear this, and I'm always like really insecure about it. Of like, oh, for the love of God, please don't, because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't want you to think I'm a fucking lunatic. Um, I just I, I'm just very aware and appreciative of the impact her work has had on me as an individual and how I see myself in the world and the comfortability that I have because I didn't have anyone else, but I always had Melanie. She played a lot of different characters in the 90s, but every single one of them could be described as like a that character. Mm -hmm. And you related to that character. I did. I did. I did. All you got to do, cat eye glasses and being a lesbian and but I'm a cheerleader rocked my world. I could do that. (laughs) I could be that. What? <laughs> Obsessed with her. Um, so yeah, I love that. And then, you know, we also I also want to talk about Megan Dodds as Marguerite, who she was a theater actor um coming into this movie. So she is very classically trained. If you look at her resume, she does a lot of classic theater, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, she does still do film and television, just not nearly as much. She is so good in this movie, and her face is so striking. Like, she has such good resting bitch face. She um, rocks a black eye better than I think anybody ever has. Oh, my God. She looks so good. Like, she looks great. (laughs) Oh, she she saved a baby. (laughs) Like, she got a black eye saving that baby, BJ. She's a hero. And she looked so good doing it. 
there's just something about the way she holds her face and the tone of her voice that she uses where she doesn't even have to be saying anything mean. I'm like, I feel terrible about myself. Yeah. Like she, she is, nails it. She is the meanest girl in school. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's she like does the, it without saying anything. It's the effortless mean girl. It's like that mean girl in the movie eighth grade that we talk about where like she doesn't actually say anything harmful, but everything she says sounds harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that is such a skill to have, especially when you watch these interviews with her and you watch that reunion video and she's so kind and lovely and like so full of life and joy. They're telling stories about being like, yeah, me and Melanie live together. And then I said, Melanie, I'm going to go run around topless in this cornfield. Take pictures. Right. <laughs> Melanie Linsky, like the third day she met her is taking like these beautiful topless photos of her in a cornfield. And it's like that, like I love when you find that out. Like Rachel McAdams is another one mm-hmm. where like you see her in Mean Girls and you're like, she is the meanest bitch in the world. And then you see her as a human being and you're like, oh, you're sunshine. Yeah. You're so nice. What a talent you are. Because- I mean, before Mean Girls, you get a dose of that. In the hot chick. That's true. Where you see like, oh, wow, Rachel McAdams can be really mean. Uh-huh. But then she comes together and she's got like red lips and is wearing a tuxedo and she's so sweet and excited. And I'm I like, know. oh, my God. She's so sweet. She's a star. <laughs> and that's very much how I feel about Megan Dodds in this. Where like you watch her on screen and you're like, that is effortless. Like, mm-hmm. I know that girl. She is mean as fuck. And then you see her in real life and you're like, no, no, no. You're just so talented because mm-hmm. you're so nice. <laughs> Look who finally decided to grace us with her presence. What do you think you are doing? Trying on my dress. Do you honestly think that after that performance this morning I'd let you go anywhere? Do you honestly think these games, these intrigues are going to win you a crown? To hunt royalty like some sport? It's disgusting. You're just jealous. These are my mother's. Yes, and she's dead. I am going to rip your hair out! But I think that there's one person that we have not spent enough time with, Mm -hmm. and that is Prince Henry. A man that I actually get. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) if you look at him, he's basically like a a, a white Antonio Banderas. That's a great descriptor for him. Yeah. Yeah, which like... That inherently makes him a little inferior to Antonio Banderas because he's one of the hottest men ever. Antonio Banderas is so hot. I mean, that what man, that man's El Mariachi. I know. That man is Zorro. Yeah. That man is hot in like the skin I live in. What the yeah. fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so like, he he's he's got very similar qualities to him. But this is a great example of showing that like rich kids aren't inherently evil they've just been never they've just never been given a reason to question their their comfortability mm-hmm. he is very open and kind to things however there's the curse of expectations mm-hmm. because there's a lot more expectations for him than there is like danielle because he's obviously quite a bit higher on the social ladder mm-hmm. but he he's 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 open minded he has a kind heart. He wants to he wants to do anything. He wants to do something. Like his spare time when he's not like trying to run away from arranged marriages, he just goes spends them like in the woods in an abandoned castle just to get away from the pressure of being a prince. Mm-hmm. So like yeah, I I understand this guy. Like he 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 sells me on this character that is usually a little bit of a hard sell because 
we don't talk about like the elitism of a prince in a lot of fairy tales. You just mm-hmm. go, oh, look, he's luxurious and he's escapism and he's handsome and he's well-dressed. Look at that. But you never think about like, that man's going to grow up and like order beheadings. Right. <laughs> you never think about that in fairy tales. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're totally right, though. And th- there's something about him that I really like because when we do have princes as characters that are kind of like blown away by like a girl and like, oh, I'm going to change my whole life mm-hmm. because I've seen something new in her. A lot of times they're also bumbling fools. Yeah. Like they're kind of like these childish princes. And um, like the the easiest example of that is Once Upon a Mattress, which is the Princess and the Pea musical where mm-hmm. he's literally Dauntless the Drab. Like that is his name. Um, and we don't get that with him, but we do get kind of the complicated figure. But at no point does this movie try to paint him as like, mm, isn't his life hard? It's like, no, he still has an immense amount of power and wealth. He has his own problems. But though. he has his own problems. Yeah. And the fact that they allow him to have that character development is something that Cinderella movies just don't have because they focus so heavily on the Cinderella character. Yeah, he's such not a factor. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't have a name in the Disney one. Yeah, I mean, we talk about it in. The, I always feel bad because we tend to like bring up a Cinderella story just to shit on it a lot on like other episodes, but it's just it's, such a good example it's of just it. So basic. Yeah, like it's the <laughs> most paint by number sort of story, and because of that, like I don't give a shit about Chad Michael Murray in that movie. I give a lot of shits about Do Gray Scott in this movie. Yeah, like I care about this prince, and like I'm heartbroken when he has his like I can't believe you lied to me like tantrum because. I get his anger, but I'm also like, come on, man. Like, you know better. Like, get it together. You've been learning. Yeah. Don't, do, you're doing so good. He, don't, don't lose it now. He was going to get married to her that night. Yeah. Like, he, he was going to profess her. his love to her and he was going to get married. She was going to be his queen and they were going to spend the rest of their lives together. That was the plan at the start of that night. And then she lied to him. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, fine, I'll get married to this woman from Spain. And, that scene. Let's talk about the the arranged marriage with the Spanish. That that scene is so good because when it starts, you're like, yeah, arranged marriage can be really sad. Mm-hmm. And she's just bawling her eyes out. She doesn't want to do it. And she's just saying stuff in Spanish. Like she's pleading, like, please, no, I don't want to. And then the scene goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And she starts blubbering more. And you're like. Okay, but it's getting funny. <laughs> it's getting really funny. And I'm like, PJ, is it, am I a psycho or is this is this supposed to get funny? And then he bursts out laughing. I'm like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> I think what happens is like you go on like a roller coaster. Like it starts and you're like, oh, this is really sad. And then it keeps going. And then it's really funny. And then it keeps going. And then it's sad again. And then it keeps going. And then it's funny again. And then he laughs. <laughs> well, like there's also this look that happens when he's just like, yeah, I don't want to marry you. Uh, go be with your beloved instead. And I feel like the two kings, like the French king and the Spanish king, give, share each other a look. And he's just like, man, at least your son-in-law is going to be like handsome. My son-in-law's like this kind of unimpressive dude who's losing his hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's mean. But also like these dads are just like, oh, no, that's who has to carry my bloodline. God damn it. <laughs> 
<laughs> it makes me think of uh, the movie The Sweetest Thing, which like since we've expanded in the podcast, maybe one day we'll just oh, cover dude, it. Dude, that would, would be wonderful. But Thomas Jane and Parker Posey being like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. We're not getting married. Like uh-huh. <laughs> that scene rules so hard. Yeah. And that's like, this is like the, the medieval version of that. Basically. <laughs> whatever. And I, okay. I also want to say that like, we've been like tossing around like a middle age medieval. I know that those are specific time periods. This is not a history podcast. I'm not a history person. Um, Dude, we're going off of vibes. We're going off vibes here. Like, so please don't like listen to this and be like, mm, actually, this was the something something this time is, period. This is like 200 years before that. <laughs> I I know. Like, I don't know what these words are. Please cut me some slack. I'm I have not, COVID fog brain still. I'm not a historian. No. I We've been over this. I don't like period pieces. Yeah. <laughs> so it, uh, that was just like for my own like <laughs> preemptive. Please be nice to me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still struggling. <laughs> so, so the so the king has his own arc. He he has his own like reckoning, and he doesn't want to be a bad person, and he wants to. He, he he likes the person that he is when he's around Danielle, and he wants yes. to be more like her and be a better person for her, and that's good romance. God damn it! You're absolutely right, and I want to point out that this movie is written by Rick Parks, Andy Tennant, and Susanna Grant. Andy Tennant actually directed this as well. Um, But Susanna Grant is kind of like the main uh, writer on this. Um, You will probably know her as one of the writers on Pocahontas. Oh, okay. Uh Uh-huh. So she she has a bone to pick with Disney. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, she also is the writer of the Sandra Bullock movie, 28 Days. Okay. But most importantly, she is the writer of Aaron Brockovich. Oh. Uh... So that, yeah, that is a movie that she's going to have in 2000. So like, this is a writer who loves writing about women who are a, like very into bucking the status quo. And like, obviously there is way too much to unpack with the things that are wrong with Pocahontas in terms of its indigenous representation. Man, it's a beautiful movie that makes every mistake. Oh my fucking God. But, you know, taking, like, if you look at it as, like, pretend this is a fictional character, like, just as a general point, it is about a woman who is bucking the status quo. Oh, yeah. And that is also what Ever After is doing. That is also what Aaron Brockovich is doing. That is what 28 Days is doing. Like, this is very much her wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It's interesting to watch Ever After and then know that Aaron Brockovich is coming and to know that like, oh, this is like the DNA that's in this. Like that it feels like she worked on the Disney movie, then she kind of like subverted the Disney movie and turned it into this like feminist piece. And then she's going to go off and make like feminist lawyer movie, like win a bunch of Oscars. Like mm-hmm. it's going to be a whole thing. Um so I, I again, this this is a great example of like why people should not discount the teen movie genre because look at where this is going to lead for this screenwriter. Yeah, absolutely. So Harmony, the time has come. Ever after a Cinderella story is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying her ticket so she can go on her own? I was a little scared. When I found out that it's like, oh, no, it's a fairy tale, but they remove the magic. So it's just a historical romance. And I was really upset that I, I was really worried that the listeners were going to be mad at me for this movie. And I was like, oh, no, I cannot be held responsible for the soap of it all. <laughs> but no, I actually really liked this. Oh, yay. No, this gets a, this gets a yes. Um, I, I just think this movie does like so many things right, especially for like an intro to feminism, mm-hmm. like the correct 
uh, understanding of like social political climates in like a safe environment that's removed from our reality mm-hmm. so that like you can digest them without being like inundated with the horrors of the world. Right. Um, no, I think this is actually, this movie holds up remarkably well. Wonderful. I think so too. Especially when you think about like this movie being 25 years old, it's like, yeah, you were onto something here. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> the, the, the politics of this movie have not aged in a way that is embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the 90s being kind of like the girl power era, a lot of the stuff has aged pretty embarrassingly, oh, yeah. pretty cringe. Next year, the feminist masterpiece of 10 Things I Hate About You that I hate, <laughs> where everyone's like, wow, it taught me about feminism. I'm like, Ever After does a better job, a far better job of teaching you about feminism. Agreed. I do. I Danielle do just doesn't listen to the raincoats. <laughs> That sounded like that hurt. It did. <laughs> I have no idea if you're going to have to keep that in the recording or not. <laughs> Probably peak the audio with my COVID coughs. Oh, goodness. Well, friends, that takes us out on Ever After. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends Up Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky, Threads, at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocit underscore trap underscore tour, and at Blue Sky at Harmony Colangelo. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. They are back on tour. They are also cured of COVID. We love them so very much. But Harmony, what band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Ever After? So this would have been really good uh, last week when we had Roxy join us on the show because we got a text from our nephew Cash going like, I better be the indie shout out this week. And it's like, buddy, we already recorded the episode. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So we're doing it this week also because... I don't really know what the musical identity of this would be. Like, folk music? Mm-hmm. Like, Renfair music? I, I, I don't know. So we're going with our nephew, uh, Cash K. Allen, who has three singles he's been releasing over the course of the year. They are Alone, Mean, and Fretboard. Um, Cash is so fucking talented. Anybody who listens to our Patreon and listens to, like, the Sadie Hawkins dance episode where he does... Uh, an uh, an adorable version of Teenage Dirtbag on ukulele, and he says to never remind people that he plays ukulele after some (laughs) events of the last month. He's like, no, I never played ukulele. Fuck you. Um, Yeah, he's super talented. BJ, would you like to to gush about your nephew? Oh, yeah, I will. I have no problem. So the thing I want to make abundantly clear is that do I have proud ant bias? Yeah, of course. Like, that's, uh, of course I do. But similarly- This is more than just nepotism. Thank you. This is more than just nepotism because Cash is genuinely really fucking talented and it's kind of infuriating sometimes. Especially especially for his age. Especially for his age. So Cash's single Fretboard um, is the first song that's going to be coming off of his EP, Four Songs and a Cover, that is coming out on August 23rd. Um, I am incapable of listening to Cash play music without breaking out into tears Mm -hmm. um, because I've been watching his sound evolve, his skill evolve, um, him finding his sound Um, there. The way that I've tried to like pitch his music to people before is it's like, if you were really into 
like indie dramas or indie rom-coms or indie movies from like the late 2000s, early 2010s. His he, music plays over the climactic kiss. He, yes. Like that is very much what his music is doing. But or also like, he's really sad. Yeah. Or <laughs> if it's not the climactic kiss, it's when like you're in the backseat of the car and your head's against the window and you're like looking out into the distance and it's dark and everything's lit by just the street lamps. That's the song that plays during that scene. It's got the energy of Midwest emo, but it's not necessarily in the Midwest emo genre. It feels a lot like uh, Dallas Green or City in Color, um, if you know who that artist is. It's got a lot of those like similar vibes to mm-hmm. it. Um, he's been doing duets with a really talented female vocalist. I am so sorry I don't know your name. Your voice is fantastic. Um, that always reminds me of like the Civil Wars, which is one of my favorite bands. Um, so it's been really exciting to see his sound evolve. And this is not me just being like, um, will you listen to my nephew's music? It's really good. I genuinely think people will enjoy it um, and it's also unapologetically teenage as mm-hmm. well uh, the same way that when you listen to the the emo music of the 2000s where it is such like big emotions such teenage emotions his music is not afraid to embrace that and that is something that I think we have lost in the last like decade or so where everyone's trying to make their music feel timeless yeah. or they're trying to be older than they are so mm-hmm. that they 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 sing about experiences that they've never had. Um, and thanks to, I think, probably like an Olivia Rodrigo, where suddenly it's like, nope, this is unapologetically teenage. Um, I His sound has kind of reflected that, and it makes me really happy. I think it's really good. Um, we're just both really proud. We're just really proud. And it's not, I'm so glad this is going to sound really awful. I'm so glad that when I do talk about like my nephew being talented, he genuinely is talented. So that you don't have to lie to the people. So I don't have to lie to people because <laughs> You're like, no, I mean, I'm just really proud of him. Like, this is not about anybody in particular, but I definitely have friends that I do like theater with and do performance with where they're like, my little cousin's doing a play. We're all going to go see and support. She's so good. And then you get there and then it really is the Miranda Cox. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for doing exactly the reference I was going to make. Where it's like, where then it is just Miranda Cosgrove singing Memory from Cats and School of Rock. Um, and so I'm really glad that that's not true. I'm really glad that, like, no, he, he knows what he's doing and he's yeah. talented. And I don't have to, like, asterisk recommend him. I can just full chested recommend him. Yeah. Congrats, congrats Cash. So, yeah. You get the longest indie shout out by far on the Ever. podcast. God, you little fuck. Um, <laughs> and I mean, and you can also listen to Cash uh, terrorize his family on the Why Did We Ever Meet podcast, which is hosted by Wes and Ashley. Wes has been on our show for Last American Virgin. Obviously, Roxy's, Roxy's obviously been on two been episodes. We've got to get Ashley on here one of these days. Yeah. Um, so you can go listen to them. He also has his own podcast called Ceramic Cat that I like can't in good faith recommend to people because it's, it's audio just, terrorism. It's audio terrorism. Like it's a nightmare, but it's really funny if you're into like that specific brand of just if you want like absurd humor, loud click hole noise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's got going on over there. But uh, that's Cash Kenneth Allen and he's going to have his EP on August 23rd. So, you know, look for that. We'll be yeah. sharing it on socials because... Of course we will. And on that note, that takes us out. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. Bye.
are the only mother I have ever known. Was there a time, even in its smallest measurement, that you loved me at all? How can anyone love a pebble in their shoe? This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.